so I have a, I have a bad habit, and uh, it's been going on for quite some time. I, in my household, wait and watch for people to start eating and ask them if they gave thanks to the Lord before they started eating. And um, I get various responses to that. You know, a lot of times, yes, I did thank the Lord for my food. Sometimes I get the, um, the smirk, like, no, I didn't. Sometimes I get the eye roll, or why did you ask me that? Sometimes I get the gotcha, yeah, you got me again, Dad. Um, and I, I don't do it like as a way to condemn, but as a reminder that every single thing that we receive in this life is something that we should give thanks for. The Lord has given us so much, and it's so easy for us to lose track of the good things that He does for us. And so, um, as we think through our study this morning, one of the things that I'd like to remind us about is that God does extraordinary things in ordinary parts of life. If you think about the ways that God answers your prayer, Think about maybe times that, that you asked him to heal you or to, to make you well physically and the Lord responded and, and you have wellness or you asked him for some guidance about a decision you were making and he provides that wisdom or he provides financially for some need that comes up. There are all kinds of ways that we have asked the Lord for something and he has provided for us in some way and we recognize how amazing that is not everyone in the whole wide world knows about how God provided for us in that, in that moment. Something extraordinary for us in the ordinary parts of life, and yet the, the renown for God's answered prayer isn't necessarily cast worldwide. I think we can see a little bit of that in this, this passage that we're studying this morning. When God does these extraordinary works, sometimes it's only apparent to a few people. But this does not minimize the glory of what he accomplishes. As we think through this passage, John chapter 2, this morning, there are amazing truths that this passage is going to reveal about our Savior. It'll be clear for us to see, I think, from the text of Scripture. But as a side note, one of the things that I hope the Lord will do with this for us And it's a side note, not the main idea. I hope that this will help us processing um, through this this passage, will help us to be encouraged to keep our eyes open for ways that God deals with you and with me in the ordinary parts, ordinary activities of our lives that contribute to how we see how awesome He is. I'm hoping as we think through this, we'll see Various ways that in our daily lives, God does amazing things and we can recognize how awesome a God he is. Uh, So we've been studying through the Gospel of John. And as we do this, and as we continue to do this, I will continue to point out, Pastor Jeff will continue to point out, that there is a theme or a purpose to the book of John. And so I'm going to bring it to your attention again from John chapter 20. It'll be on the screens to my left and right. Verses 30 and 31, where God, through the Apostle John, records the purpose of this gospel. It says, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence 
of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these, the ones that are written, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. So these things are recorded, these signs are recorded so that people like you and me will know these three things. This will be on the screen as well. We'll know that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Christ. We'll know that Jesus is the Son of God. And we'll know that Jesus gives or provides life. This is the purpose of the Gospel of John. That we would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And that in believing, we would have life, life, receive life in Him, in His name. And so this account of Jesus turning the water into wine is no different than the rest of the signs. This is to help you and to help me to believe who Jesus really is. If we get caught up wondering about, you know, so what is this substance that has been produced by Jesus? We get all caught up in whether it's wine or grape juice and all of these kinds of things that can naturally uh, be the way that we think about it. You miss the point. I could talk to you about the fact that they're going to move. It's three days later. Within a seven-day period of time, you have this sequence in the Gospel of John. We could talk about the, the days that are taking place. You talk about the fact that it's about eight or nine miles for them to travel. Those are not the points of what Jesus is communicating or God is communicating through Jesus' amazing work. It's a revelation of who He is and of what He provides. So keep that on the forefront of your mind as we look through this. We're going to read the passage Our brother David already read it once for us. We're going to read it again, and then we'll work our way through it as we go through uh, this time this morning. So John chapter 2, starting in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with His disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to Him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled him up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, the poor, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine Until now, this, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So we have this first scene, and that is Jesus, his disciples, and his mother are all invited to this wedding celebration 
and are in attendance. So you can see that in verses 1 and 2. We just read it, so I'm not going to read it again. But they're there. They were invited, and they're there. So this could elicit some questions. And we're not going to spend time talking about the questions. I'm just going to throw them your way. Who was married? Uh, I don't know. Why was Jesus invited? And why were his disciples invited? Don't know. What was Mary's role at this wedding? We don't really know. We get a little implication from the text. Ah, here's one that matters. Is it significant that Jesus attended this wedding? Is it significant that Jesus would attend a wedding? Does Jesus have any thoughts about weddings? I think so. Is it significant that Jesus is celebrating at a party? Too many view God and Jesus, who is God in the flesh, as a party. Yeah, you knew it. A party pooper. Like just, yeah, just very, very serious and very boring. And that is not, I believe, what you see about God in general and Jesus in specific. I think this is pretty interesting. They're at this wedding, and a divine moment arises. We see that in verse 3. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Now this would not be a divine moment for me. Or for you. Because what would I do? You'd be saying, oh, bummer. Perhaps you should run down the street and get some more. Like that's all I could do. I'll pray for you. Here's ten bucks. I'm not sure what else I could do. But the, this is a divine moment for Jesus. So, But it, this also elicits some further questions for me to just tease and leave hanging for you. Why did Mary care that they ran out of wine? Probably she had some kind of a role here. Um, why is it a big deal to run out of wine at a wedding in the first century in Cana? Probably because there would be shame associated with not providing enough for this seven-day feast. So someone's embarrassed. Why did Mary approach Jesus about this? Can we really, you know, do we have to dive deep into this, or can we just assume that Mary would have approached Jesus about lots of ordinary things that she would experience since she, he is her oldest son and so it would be normal if a problem arises to go hey jesus i've got this problem and jesus often i would assume helped her in some way uh, he did work with his hands he was a carpenter joseph probably at this time is no longer alive but a divine moment arises here in the midst of this ordinary obscure wedding you think it's obscure wedding isn't it we all agree like nobody knows who's being married we don't know why they're there. We don't know why Mary is there, why she has this role. But it's not obscure because God is about to do something awesome. He's going to show something about who his son is. And we get to read about it. And we get to enjoy God revealing to us how astounding Jesus is. He's just amazing. And so this is the, this is the setting for us. This obscure 
wedding. Jesus' response to Mary provides a little bit, a few different types of observations. Look at verse 4. Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. So we've got these observations we want to make. Jesus addresses his mother respectfully, but seemingly at a distance. Have you watched The, the Chosen? It's, I really enjoy watching it. and I really watched, uh, like watching Jesus dealing with Mary, calling her Ima, so a tender term for, for mom. Well, here we have Gune. Gune is like wife. Hey, what? Gune. Wife. I need coffee. No. Um, <laughs> or it could be woman. But it would be not a like derogatory, hey, woman, come back to the table. I have a need. You know, my, my, my water glass is empty. Woman, you know, come on over here. Not like that. It's more like dear woman or uh, ma'am. But that's not how he would probably normally talk to his mother. So there's some kind of a distance here, but it's not like distance you're some obscure woman. It's, it's that right now, I, I have a role, I have a job to do. This is not mom-son. This is a revelation of who I am beyond my fleshly origin. And the way he furthers this dear woman, he's, he uses a very interesting phraseology in the Greek, Literally, he says, what to you and to me? What to you and to me? So my English standard version reads, what does this have to do with me? And the New American Standard Bible says, what does this have to do with us? Why are you asking me about or telling me about the empty wine bottles? <laughs> what, what's, what, what does this have to do with me or, or us? But his next statement um, starts to unveil a little bit about why he's, what's going on here. He says, my hour has not yet come. My hour has not yet come. What does this have to do with me, ma'am? My hour has not yet come. And we're going to see, and we're going to take just a minute to to observe this. This phrase about his hour is a repeated phrase refrain in the Gospel of John. It's used in chapter 7 and verse 30, chapter 8 and verse 20, chapter 12, verses 20, uh, it's actually like 23 or 24 is the actual verse. We're going to turn there in just a moment. And then chapter 13, verse 1, and chapter 17, verse 1, this concept of the hour. Now in this passage, John chapter 4, as well as John 7 and John 8, Jesus says, my hour has not yet come, It's not time for everyone to know everything that I'm supposed to reveal to them. It's not time for my glory to be unveiled and them to understand why I have come exactly. So he's letting her know, ma'am, dear woman, it's not time for me to unveil my full glory. So we're going to take it in a couple of moments and look at this concept of Jesus' hour. Look at chapter 12 of the Gospel of John. So the first three uses... Chapter 4, chapter 7, and chapter 8 are all about it's not time for his glory to be unveiled. But as we get to chapter 12, Jesus starts turning the tables on this matter and starts to say to his disciples and others, it is my hour. 
chapter 12, starting in verse 20. God's Word says, Now among those who, were, who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and asked him, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip went and told Andrew. Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them. Will you read this verse with me? The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Let's stop it right there. The time, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be what? Glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. And stop right there. Jesus is giving you a little indication that his hour is here to be glorified and it is related to what? His death. Look at chapter 13 and verse 1. Chapter 13 and verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. His hour to do what? To go out of the world and to the Father. Look at chapter 17. So now we know we're in the last week of Jesus' life, right? In um, chapter 13, they have the, the upper room discussions and Jesus washing their feet. And then you have Jesus talking about you know, not letting their hearts be troubled in chapter 14. He reveals things about the Spirit coming in chapters 14, 15, and 16. Now in chapter 17... And verse 1, notice this, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. I think it's pretty clear that this hour referred to back in John chapter 2 is a reference to Jesus being glorified through his laying down of his life. So we can see that this hour has that idea that He's the one through whom real, eternal redemption would take place. He would redeem people's lives by laying down His own. Head back to John chapter 2 now. The unveiling of His glory in John chapter 2 is limited to just a few people. So He's about to be glorified in some way in this scenario which is the goal of Jesus' signs, is to be manifest, that people would understand that He is the Christ, the Son of the living God, or the Son of God, and that in believing, you might have what? Life in His name. And so this is a a way in which that is being unveiled, but it's just unveiled to just a few. So we can see actually in our passage that Jesus does not make this sign of the turning of water into wine obvious to all of the wedding guests. It was just uh, his disciples and maybe these servants and his mother who were knowledgeably impacted. So take a look down at verse 11 of John chapter 2. Look at how this passage comes to a conclusion. It says, and his disciples believed in him. You see that at the end of verse 11? And his disciples believed in him. This is the goal of the signs, a a manifestation of Jesus' glory, of his nature, of who he is, and of his provision. And a elicitation or a solicitation of belief. And you know what this, this sign does? 
it elicits exactly that belief from the disciples. It's amazing. What's interesting is while it's limited to just a few, this full unveiling and belief, scores of others, scores of others were enjoying the bountiful blessing of Jesus without any knowledge that it was he and not the groom of the wedding that provided the best and most bountiful, bountiful provision. And you know, this is still true today. Every day, people are blessed by the glorious God and this glorious Jesus who provides us abundantly all things to enjoy. And some of us see. Some of us understand. Some of us have had our eyes opened. We see that He is glorious. He is Messiah. He is the Son of God. We believe it. We have received life. We enjoy it every single day. But there are so many that experience some of these benefits, bountiful benefits, and yet they don't recognize the source. You know, this has been true from the beginning. I want you to just think with me for just a couple of minutes on this matter. If you can think right from the Garden of Eden, where God provided Adam and Eve with a bountiful environment, abundant with fruit. But in the moment that they were, their eyes were fixed on something else, all of these other options seemed so unimpressive. They had been enjoying the bounty of God's goodness. Day in and day out. We don't know how, for how long. But when their eyes were fixed on that one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that, that was so impressive to them that everything else became unimpressive. When you and I want that one thing, the other blessings begin to be minimized. I want, to, I want you to think about it like this. In, in the book of Hosea, this is another illustration of this concept. It's, just, it's, it's part of who we are. The book of Hosea illustrates Hosea's wife Gomer going after other gods. Gomer was going after other men to get something from them. Illustrating Israel's going after other gods to extract something from those gods. And in this, God was illustrating that Israel kept running after these gods to provide for her desires. It's captured in two statements in Hosea chapter 2. Again, these will be on the screen to my left and right. In Hosea chapter 2 and verse 5, for their mother, speaking of Israel, played the whore. She who conceived them has acted shamefully. For she said, I will go after my lovers. Why? Because they're the ones who give me my bread. They're the ones that give me my water. They give me my wool and my flax, my oil and my drink. They give me what I'm looking for. I'm going after these other gods because that's where I can get what I'm looking for. And God responds to that in verse 8 by saying this, she did not know that it was I who gave her the grain. It was me that gave her the wine. 
It was me that gave her the oil. It's me who lavished on her, lavished, overflowed on her silver and gold which they used for other gods. So God is letting us know in this illustration the reality of the heart of the people of Israel and that is they were looking for stuff They had experienced God's blessing and they thought it came from somewhere else and so they charged hard after this other place when in reality it was actually God who was flooding it into their lives. And we think back in John chapter 2, Mary comes to to Jesus and says, hey, they have no wine. And and Jesus says, ma'am, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And yet he goes on to turn the water into wine, as we'll read about, and we have read about a couple of times already. We're going to read about it again. We, we, we see him turn this water into wine. The, the servants fill the, the water pots with water, these uh, purification pots with water, right to the brim. So they had to work at this, right? They bring all the water they had to, 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 to use the, the, their means of getting water. It was, it was an effort. Filled them up, and then what do they do? Dip something in there, draw it out, put it in a cup. And it goes to the master of the feast. He says, this is the best stuff. This is the best. I can't believe you kept the best for last. Whatever. Um, And then everyone else from then on in, that thing gets dripped out or dipped in, handed a a cup or a, a glass or whatever it might be of wine. And all of them were receiving something that Jesus produced and they thought it was the bridegroom of the party. Don't miss it, friends. Don't miss Every day, the things that God gives to you, provides to you. It can be so easy to just kind of live. But there's so much that He's giving to us and we want to see it. We want to see Him for who He is. To recognize His provision and His kindness and His faithfulness to us. Okay, so we, we, we now see you know, Jesus' response to Mary... We get it at this point a little bit. And then Mary's response to Jesus is a little different than I would anticipate after what Jesus said. All right, so this is just little Rob world for a moment. I go to Jesus and I say, Jesus, hey, they ran out of wine. He's like, sir, <laughs> what does that have to do with me and you? <laughs> My hour is not yet. I'd be like, walk away. But that's not, Jesus, uh, that's not Mary's response. It's pretty interesting. In verse 5, look at what she says. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. So she didn't take that the way I take that. She said, okay, he's going to do something. I don't know what it is, but he's going to do something. So, hey guys, whatever he says to do, do it. In fact, that's exactly what happens. Exactly what they told him to do. Uh, he told them to do, they did. Now, as we look a little further in this text, it's not a parable. John chapter 2 is not a parable. But it does provide parable-like implications. So I want for us to talk about that for a moment. I'm going to read verses 6 through 10 again. 6 through 10. And then I want to make a statement that hopefully will help us to start to see a little bit of the, the, the teaching that this account affords us. Verse 6. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 
20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom. And he said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. All right, so here's where we start to draw out some teaching. Jesus uses a fixture of the Old Covenant to hold a symbol of the New Covenant. Let that sit on you for a moment. Six stone water jars used for the rites of purification, Jewish purification. So they would use this for hand washing and washing of the vessels to make sure that they were all ceremonially clean as opposed to unclean. Yep, makes sense. These ceremonial washings, as Jesus has said elsewhere, do not address the biggest problem. Luke chapter 11 and verse 39 says this, Now you Pharisees, you cleanse the outside of the cup and the outside of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. In Mark chapter 7, Jesus makes clear that the defilement that we experience is from the inside, not the outside. But yet we have this, these stone pots. Why do they use stone? Well, most likely it's because uh, that stone in their mind would not transfer the uncleanness from this vessel to what's trying to be cleaned. And so... That's what they're doing. In, the, in this context, in this vessel of purification under the Jewish law or Jewish uh, religious code, Jesus does this work of providing true cleansing by transferring or transforming this water that cannot cleanse to a wine that is His, that is clean. It's an amazing thing. There's so much scripture on the significance of wine. We're going to touch on a little bit of it, uh, mostly by implication. We will turn in a moment to Isaiah 25. Uh, if you want to turn there now, you can go ahead and do that. I'm just going to talk to you a little bit about some of what the Old Testament speaks to and the light uh, and the significance of wine. So, in while you're turning to Isaiah 25, I'll turn as well. In Leviticus 26. One of the contrasts between blessing and cursing associated with the law covenant was that when the people were cursed because of their rebellion, they would have no fruit because they were choosing their own way. No fruit because they were choosing their own way. And when they saw God's way as right and they believed God and listened to God God would provide in abundance and part of that abundance was was with regard to wine Uh, listen to this statement from Leviticus 26 in verses 27 and 28 it says but if you uh, if in spite of this you will not listen to me you're not listening to me 
You're not observing who I am and what I provide. In spite of this, if you will not listen to me but walk contrary to me, then I will walk contrary to you. And as part of that, he talks about the withholding of fruit of the vine. Withholding of lavish, uh, abundant giving. I provide giving. I provide for you abundantly. Look to me. Listen to me. See me. Believe me. I provide. And if you choose to walk in contrast to me, I will withhold from you. In the days of the prophet Amos, there was rampant oppression to the point that Amos proclaims, listen to this, you trample on the poor. And he says, you afflict the righteous. You take a bribe. You turn aside the needy in the gates. These are all symptoms of rebellion against God's plans. These are uh, symptoms of rebellion against God's purposes. And they're symptoms of rebellion against God's ways. The result of this rebellion is the consequence like this. Look at what it says at the end of uh, Amos 5.11. You have planted pleasant vineyards. What does it say? You've planted the vineyards, but you will not drink of their wine. You turn away from all the things that I've called you to. Instead of being kind and generous to the poor, you trample them under your foot. Instead of seeing the righteous as people that, that are of the, the, the kingdom, people that are of God's people and, and, and caring for them, you, you turn them aside. You turn away from them. You, you could care less about them. Instead, you're more interested in lining your own pockets. You'll take a bribe at the drop of a hat. You value the things that perish. And if you value the things that perish... I will not sustain you with those things that perish. That's the... You know, it's, it's interesting. This is the way it goes under a conditional covenant. This is the way it goes under a conditional covenant. Put yourself back in Amos' day in the land of Israel and you too would be withheld from. Because the law provides something. You know what it provides? Undressing. It uncovers our wickedness. It uncovers our sin. This is the way it goes under a conditional covenant. As Jesus uses a fixture of this old covenant that was intended to provide some type of cleansing he fills these pots of the Old Covenant with a symbol of God's favor brought without condition. Oh, this is so cool. He just always uses the common things of life to unveil a little bit more of who He is. You can see it in how He uses the birds of the air and the, the, the lilies of the field and the raiment of Solomon. 
He uses common, ordinary things to reveal something about himself and who God is. And in this instance, what he's doing is he's telling you, look at these pots that usually you use to wash your hands so you'll feel clean. And you use them to wash these uh, dishes. And they're not clean when you're done. They're not clean when you're done. I want to provide you for, for, with something that is of abundance that, that I give to you that will provide true, lasting cleansing and show you who I really am. As Jesus uses this, He provides this favor. He really, essentially, to those few, to those few that knew what happened, and it was just a few, His disciples, and there weren't many at that point, His mother... And then these servants, he says, come. Come. Have the fruit of my power. Have the fruit of my person. Have the fruit of my provision. I want to give this to you. For us, some 2,000 years later, we have the privilege of looking at this in John chapter 2 and saying, yeah, the Lord is inviting us to experience from Him a a bounty that we didn't earn, that we didn't even ask for. It's who He is. The new covenant brought unconditionally by the hands of a great redeeming God can be symbolized by abundant provision. So now we're in Isaiah 25. Isaiah 25. Look at verses 1 through 9 with me. He says, Oh Lord, you are my God. I will exalt you. I will praise your name, for you have done, what does it say? Wonderful things, plans formed of old, faithful and sure. For you have made the city a heap, the fortified city a ruin, the foreigner's palace is a city no more. It will never be rebuilt. Therefore, strong peoples will what? Glorify you. Cities of ruthless nations will fear you. Do you see the the kingdom context here? Do you see that this is God righting all the wrongs and and bringing about peace? Do you see that? I think it's pretty clear in those first few verses. Verse 4, For you have been a stronghold of the poor, a stronghold of the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm, and a shade from the heat. For the breath of the ruthless is like a storm against a wall, like heat in a dry place. You subdue the noise of the foreigners as heat by the shade of cloud, so the song of the ruthless is put down. Now look at this, verse 6. On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of what? Rich food. A feast of well-aged what? wine. Of rich food full of marrow and of what? aged wine well refined and he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples the veil that is spread over all the nations he will swallow up death forever the lord will wipe away tears from all faces and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth for the lord has spoken it will be said on that day behold Will you say this with me? This is our God. We have waited for Him that He might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for Him. Let us be glad and rejoice in His salvation. 
You see what he's doing? He's talking about this coming day when God would remove reproach and remove opposition and remove tears and remove death, all of these things, and he would provide abundantly a feast of joy, a feast of abundance, and a feast with well-aged wine. There is a connection here in John chapter 2 between these earthen pots used for, for purification and the salvation that God provides through himself that comes out of nowhere. It doesn't come from my craftiness, your craftiness, the disciples' craftiness, but only by the glorious power of a glorious, redeeming God. He's he's showing us Himself. This one, at this obscure wedding feast that we don't know anybody that's there except Jesus, His disciples, and His mother. We've heard about them. We know no one else. And Jesus unveils that He is the Christ. There's no one that brings abundance like this. Six pots, 20 to 30 gallons apiece. That's 120 to 180 gallons. The equivalent of 600 to 900 bottles of wine. That's a lot of stuff going on here. Abundance comes from the the will and the power, the person, and the provision of Jesus Christ. It's amazing. In our passage in John chapter 2, we can see the evidence that Jesus is the Christ. But only His disciples, His mother, and a few hardworking servants were truly aware of the sign that Jesus performed, showing his true identity that would unveil his glory and spark faith in them. That's how the, the passage ends back in John chapter 2. Head back there to John 2. We're going to look at verse 11 one more time. And we're going to make a couple of conclusions. Look at verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee. And he manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. This is the first of these signs. Signs. What is a sign? It's, it's something that Jesus did that pointed to something deeper. D.A. Carson uh, writes this. It's a, uh, signs are a d- significant display of power that point beyond themselves to the deeper realities that could be perceived with the eyes of faith. And so... I want to start just to talk for just a moment about what these signs, this sign, points to. We've talked about it quite a bit, so we'll just kind of recap it. Jesus comes bringing signs of the kingdom age because he is the Christ. He is the Christ. Jesus' provision is abundant. There should have been an apostrophe after the Jesus there. Forgive my language issues. Jesus' abundance is, uh, Jesus' provision, excuse me, is abundant. Thirdly, people were enjoying that provision without realizing its true source. I'll leave those there. I'm going to talk through one last implication, one last point that this sign could be grabbing our attention with. 
the relationship between this sign in John chapter 2 and the fact that churches all around the globe on any given Sunday would be celebrating the Lord's Supper with unleavened bread and a cup filled with some substance, whether they use grape juice like we do or wine like some do, symbolizing God's provision and God's invitation to the table. There is a relationship here between what's going on in John chapter 2 and the table that God offers to us. When Jesus talks about the Lord's Supper in the, the Gospels, he speaks about drinking the fruit of the vine with the, his disciples in the kingdom. And it reminds us of a coming marriage supper of the Lamb. There's a marriage supper with all the garments provided. White, pure, righteous garments obtained by Him, provided to us. And at that feast, celebrating the marriage of God's people to this glorious bridegroom who is Jesus, there will be this reminder of the shed blood offered to remove our sin forever and ever. Provided by Christ. That cleansing comes no other way than by the blood of Christ. And in this first sign, Jesus' glory was shown forth to this small group of people, but it had the right result. The right result was to engender faith in them. And for us, as we observe this and think about who Jesus is and the provision that He has for us, it should engender within us a faith, a belief, and admiration, and awe that God in Christ provides abundantly for us forever. He doesn't withhold. Give us little, little, uh, little treats, little teeny things. He provides in abundance. It's real, and it won't be taken away from us. His lavish grace should astound us this morning. I want to conclude by reading the words of a a song called Grace Upon Grace. It'll be on the screen to my left and right. How can you see me at my worst and still say I am loved? What promise can I stand on when I don't feel good enough? When the enemy's reminding me of all that I've done wrong, what freedom do I have to sing this new creation song? Wave upon wave of grace upon grace, endlessly washing my sins away. It goes on, I, I know the only reason I can stand here free of all my shame is wave upon wave of grace upon grace upon grace. Singing what can wash away my sin and make me new again? You know it. Nothing. Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This is what we observe here. An unveiling of who our Savior is and what He provides. And we say, God, God, You're awesome. Help me not to look elsewhere for satisfaction and for the things I need 
most dearly. You have it all and you provide it all through Christ in abundance. Let's pray. Father, you're good to us. And sometimes we see it. And you're good to us and sometimes we don't see it. Father, fill us with joy and peace in believing. Provide for us an awareness to who you are and what you've done more and more. May our awareness of you capture our attention and give us hearts filled with gratitude and a desire to proclaim to those who have never tasted of your goodness just how good you are. Use us that we might testify to the nations that they might see you, know you, and believe you. In Jesus' name, amen.